Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Thanks to opioid settlements from companies like Walgreens, Johnson & Johnson, and Purdue Pharma, states are beginning to receive an influx of money. Over $50 billion is being given to states and municipalities for addiction treatment and prevention. But what exactly treatment and prevention includes is up to interpretation. In some parts of the U.S., figuring out how to spend the money is turned contentious. In Pennsylvania, advocates have pushed back on some counties wanting to use the money for law enforcement, while in New York and San Francisco, groups pushing to fund safe injection sites have been rejected. And then there's another issue. Some states aren't sharing exactly how those funds are being spent at all. And the opioid epidemic is only getting worse. In 2021, more than 80,000 people died from an overdose involving an opioid. That's 12,000 more deaths than the year before, according to CDC data. So what can states do now to prevent more deaths? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to cover, so stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's start the conversation by discussing the settlement and what we do know. Joining us is Aneri Patani. She's a senior correspondent at KFF Health News, previously called Kaiser Health News. She's been doing a lot of reporting on the issue. Aneri, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. And also with us, North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein. He co-led the negotiations in the National Opioid Settlement. Attorney General Stein, thanks for your time. Jen, it's my pleasure. So the national settlement agreed upon last year includes 47 states, the District of Columbia, and five U.S. territories. Some states like West Virginia decided to pursue their own cases. Attorney General Stein, talk us through the broad strokes of the national settlement. What does it do? It accomplishes three primary objectives to to deal with the opioid epidemic. And and by the way, I want to concur with your uh, prefatory comments. We are in an incredibly deadly moment. And what is the deadliest drug epidemic in American history. And it was precipitated by opioid drug manufacturers, distributors, and frankly, pharmacies engaging in sales of these pills in areas where they were not uh, justified. The manufacturers engaged in years of uh, marketing to persuade prescribers that opioids were two things. One, incredibly effective with dealing with pain and not addictive. And it turns out that there are other ways to treat pain that are better 
and that are surely much less addictive. And so it has sparked this absolutely devastating epidemic that is, is taking lives. It's eight, eight people every day in North Carolina die of an overdose. I mean, that, that's eight today and eight tomorrow uh, and eight the day after. And it's, it's absolutely devastating. So we wanted to hold these drug companies accountable, and we have. We, we wanted to get as much money as we could. The first wave of settlements uh, was $26 billion, and that was with the three major drug distributors and one manufacturer, a generic manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson. We have a subsequent wave of settlements, a second phase, that are being finalized as we speak that will bring in uh, $20 billion more. So we're, we're all going to be in for more than $50 billion, as you rightly said. So it was about getting money to make them pay. But we wanted more than just money. We wanted that money to make a difference. We wanted it to help people who are struggling with addiction uh, enjoy a healthier and happier future. And so we put guardrails to require that the money go to remediation. Uh, and then third, there were a number of injunctive provisions to change the business practices of all the industry players to make sure something like this never happens again. Well, in area, a lot of people make a comparison between this settlement and the 1998 uh, tobacco settlement. Tobacco companies agreed to the biggest civil settlement in U.S. history, $246 billion. What lessons did we learn from how that was handled? As you said, this is sort of a natural comparison point for folks because the tobacco settlement also, you know, talked about companies marketing products, promoting them without acknowledging the health benefits and leading to a huge public health cost. In that case, though, there were no guardrails on the settlement. States won hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, but there was no uh, requirements about how those dollars needed to be spent. And not necessarily, you know, nefarious, but state governments were dealing with a lot of different budget pressures. And so a lot of that money ended up going to filling this budget gap or transportation and building roads. Some in states like North Carolina, South Carolina even went to subsidizing tobacco farmers. So today, less than 3% of the annual payouts from the tobacco settlement are used towards smoking prevention or cessation programs. And people really worry that the opioid settlement dollars, they don't want to see it go the same way. They want to see the money coming from the settlement be applied to uh, preventing and treating addiction. Now, the national opioid settlement for $26 billion differs from the tobacco agreement in that 85% of the funds must be used for addiction treatment or prevention. But there is wiggle room there. Anari, explain. Absolutely. So the national settlement, opioid settlement, has a list of uh suggested strategies that qualify as opioid remediation. Uh, and these are things like, it's a long list, but includes things like funding treatment for folks who are uninsured, uh, building, using the funds to build recovery housing, training law enforcement uh, to deal with addiction-related cases, uh, researching new uh, treatments for chronic pain that don't involve opioids. So the list itself is broad, and it's non-exhaustive. So states can do things, use the money for things that are not on the list as well. So that means, you know, there's, there's a lot of room for interpretation in what counts as opioid remediation. And as states and local governments are getting this money, we're starting to see that interpretation play out uh, very differently. Well, Attorney General Stein, we're, we're talking about large sums of money. What does the settlement require states to publicly report about their distribution plans? The Agreement requires that the money be used for remediation, and there are broad categories and then specific strategies within those broad categories that are that are permissible. And it's 85% have to do f for that purpose. 
if a state spends it on anything else other than remediation, it has to report it what it spent on in an alternative to the National Settlement Administrator's website. Uh, in North Carolina, we took it to a much different level. We changed the default. Everything has to be reported. And in North Carolina, by the way, 100% of our dollars are going to opioid remediation, 100%, whether it goes to the local governments or to the state. And we are publicly reporting uh, how every dollar is spent and critically, what was the impact of that investment because it's not enough that the money be spent on treatment or on a harm reduction strategy. We want to know that it was an effective treatment program or an effective harm reduction strategy uh, because we want to save lives. Christine Menhe founded the opioidsettlementtracker.com. She found that only 12 states promised to share how the money will be spent and the details around it. Uh, Attorney General Stein, why, why might a state choose not to publicly report its expenditures? I have no idea. I think they should. Uh, We obviously here in North Carolina have adopted 100% transparency because I believe that when policymakers make decisions, and essentially these are appropriations decisions, they're taking a a source of revenue from the settlement and then choosing how to allocate it among different organizations or programs, and we, the people need to know what decisions were made and why they made those decisions and did those decisions make a difference in their communities. And that is the strategy we've adopted here in North Carolina. We have a website, uh, it's CoreNC, and it's ncopioidsettlement.org. And I encourage everybody to go look at it because I want every North Carolinian a year from now to be able to go on and look and see how did their county commission allocate their money? What did my neighboring county commissioners do with their money? And did they get a better return? In which case, I'm going to go to my county commissioner's and suggest they try something else next year. Aniri, more than $3 billion have gone out to states and local governments as of last month. Generally, how are states going through the process of deciding how to spend that money? It varies greatly. Uh, each state seems to have you know, a slightly different process, uh, just starting with who controls the money. In certain states, you know, 50%, like North Carolina, um, you know, 85% goes to local governments. In some states, that's 50%, and the other 50% is controlled by the legislature uh, or, you know, the health department or something else. So it varies greatly state by state. Uh, some places have councils that they've set up to, you know, oversee a trust, and the a board of advisors for the council is going to distribute that money. Uh, and so there is... There's wide variety in how they're allocating the money. And what we're starting to see as states are starting to spend is also different priorities emerging in, in what they're funding. Uh, in you know Louisiana, the 20% of their money um, automatically goes to sheriff's offices to, to spend through their offices. Versus uh, in Maine, there's a set aside for 3% of their money to go towards funding that addresses the opioid crisis in public school systems. In Rhode Island, you have uh, them putting money towards opening a uh, safe consumption site and mental health programs in schools and communities. So every state is sort of approaching the process differently and has different priorities in where they want these dollars to go. Attorney General Stein, we have just a, a minute left here. How are you involving the community and deciding how this money is spent? I, I have done a series of roundtables around the state. I've actually done over 40 of them involving 56 of our 100 counties. And that process is completely 
reaffirmed to me that we made the right decision to use local governments as our distribution network because those local governments are engaging their communities in a strategy-forming process to decide how best to spend the money. And it's been incredibly uh, encouraging to see the good decisions they're making. That's Josh Stein. He's Attorney General for North Carolina. He co-led negotiations for the National Opioid Settlement last year for $26 billion. Attorney General Stein, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for your interest. In a moment, we hear from a parent who has been personally affected by the opioid crisis and how she thinks that money should be spent. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. We're discussing how states are planning to spend over $50 billion in opioid settlement funds. From 1999 to 2020, more than 560,000 people died from an overdose, including an opioid. That's according to the CDC. Joining us to share her story is Jackie Lewis. She's a mother, grandmother, and advocate for caregivers. She joins us from Columbus, Ohio. Jackie, thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, You lost your son, Sean, to an overdose in October at the age of 34. I'm so very sorry for your loss. Your son was introduced to opioids while he was in middle school. What was his journey with substance use like? Um... Well, it was devastating and ultimately took his life. Um, He was, my son had a lot of health issues uh, and dealt with a lot of physical pain. Uh, He had scoliosis um, and uh, some other health issues. So he was in middle school when his primary care doctor uh, prescribed him pain medication, several of them actually. And... um, anti-anxiety medications as well. Um, This has been, you know, many years ago. And at that time in society, you didn't hear about, you know, the opioid crisis. You didn't hear about substance abuse. Uh, It just wasn't there. And so folks like myself and, and their children like mine that have struggled were really in it alone, but that's where it started. Um, My son became addicted to those medications. He was so young, he didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was happening. I trusted the doctors. Um, I look back now, and I can remember sitting in the um, lobby of the doctor's office week after week with pharmaceutical reps coming in with just bags of 
these medications uh, to give out as free samples. And at that time, doctors were getting kickbacks from these medications as well. Um, But that is what hooked my son ultimately. And when uh, a time came, his uh, doctor suddenly quit treating him because during one of the testing, she found uh, marijuana in his system along with the other uh, painkillers she had been giving him. So she cut him off. Well, he was in his teens. He did not know what was happening to his body. He just knew suddenly he was very sick. He couldn't function. He was in pain, worse than he ever was. He turned to the streets Uh, That led to um, um, just another (laughs) downward spiral um, into into a dark world, a very dark world. And um, he he ended up trying to get into recovery. Uh, We tried different treatment uh, to attend different treatment programs, but typically. He was turned away because he didn't have insurance. Um, I remember at one point there was a time he had tried to to be clean for a week. He had tried on his own to kick this. And um, we went to a, a place here locally that um, we wanted to seek help to keep him going in a good direction, in a good path. So they took him in. We went in and sat down. They did a... Um, an evaluation with him, and then um, they um, came back and said they couldn't help him, that they could not take him because he was clean. And they said, now, if you want to go out on the street right now and use and then come back, maybe we can take you then. Wow. Um, that that was the kind of roadblocks we ran into, and to me was devastating because... I had fought so long, um, fighting for his life every day. And I think any any parent that has a child struggling, that's what you do. Well, you're always playing de- defense and trying to save their lives. Yeah. Well, you're now raising your seven-year-old granddaughter, Sean's daughter. You're also caring for your 96-year-old mother who has dementia. And Jackie, you're doing this just with Social Security payments. I can't imagine how difficult that must be. Are you able to access any additional resources at this point? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, I have tried. I've tried, uh, but I'm always declined because of my Social Security. Um, they have levels here in Ohio that you have to be at a certain poverty level to be qualified for any help. So uh, I'm always disqualified with my social security. You've been involved in advocacy for years. You developed a program for substance use awareness in the workplace at your former company. And in 2017, Ohio became one of the first states to sue opioid distributors. You reached out to the Ohio Attorney General's office after creating a proposal on how the settlement funds should be used. How do you think this money should be spent? Well, yes, I did come up with a proposal and invited uh, a member from 
from the attorney general's office uh, to our plant site so other employees uh, could share their stories as well, which we did. Um, But it ended up going nowhere. My proposal at the time, and still holds, um, and I'll quickly just say there's four entities I was targeting. Uh, Number one um, that I've been a real advocacy for are grandparents uh, raising grandchildren and who have just, as you were speaking earlier, have suddenly been thrust and unexpectedly called upon to take custody and raise their grandkids as a direct result of this opioid crisis. Um, while still having grown children struggling with the disease or have lost children. Most grandparents did not plan or foresee any of this to be starting over raising little children again. And to a majority of grandparents, I feel there is a great financial stress that arises in addition to what they've already been coping with. And we want our grandkids to thrive. Um, and, And these Little children, um, and you use the phrase, which I'm starting to hear a lot of now, is there's a whole generation of these little children that are now being called opioid orphans. Mm -hmm. So grandparents, I feel like uh, in that drug settlement, there should be direct funding to the grandparents or kinship givers of these little children to help raise them and give them a a good, solid life. I think there needs to be accountability and justice and the right thing done uh, in this. I also think uh, a proposal, uh, a second proposal was that uh, drug lawsuit funds should be available to families who have lost a loved one to the opioid crisis to pay for funeral expenses uh, to those families. I think it would show from the drug manufacturers and from the foundations handling this um, money that it would show some respect to those families and, and to the one who gave their life in this. Um, number three is another one I'm very passionate about is um, funding from the drug manufacturing lawsuits to be available to any business in the state of Ohio who opts to provide drug education and awareness to their workforce. Um, and special training to their managers and frontline supervisors on um, their drug policies and how to handle an employee who's struggling, how to help that employee, how to recognize this, um, and to do an intervention to help. Uh, But make that available to companies because it's in the workplace too. And the fourth? And then... And the fourth is better treatment centers that are all-inclusive and accepts anyone, no matter of their ability to pay and what stage of recovery they are in. Well, the One Ohio Recovery Foundation is in charge of distributing 55% of the over $800 million in settlement funds for your state. The rest of the funds are going to state and local governments, but there are currently lawsuits filed against the foundation saying there's a lack of transparency around how the money is being used. And we did reach out to One Ohio Recovery Foundation 
they declined to be part of the conversation. This is a, a state-created and appointed foundation, but they sent this statement saying, quote, the One Ohio Memorandum of Understanding very specifically outlines approved purposes and abatement strategies. Settlement funds are to support, and the foundation must follow these guidelines. The foundation's all-volunteer board of directors and its interim executive director are working with all their might to advance the gargantuan task of standing up the foundation from scratch and carrying out its mission to save lives. Now, Jackie, I know you've attempted to to connect with the foundation and, and you've been unsuccessful so far. If you had the opportunity to speak to someone at the foundation or, or in the Ohio state government, what would you say? Well, basically, um, I have reached out to the Governor DeWine's office uh, for close to six years, off and on, asking to meet personally with him to discuss my proposal. That has never happened. Uh, to One Ohio, uh, I have been ignored with my online inquiries. Um, and I guess my one major question to the foundation would be, are there any funds from the drug lawsuit that are being earmarked for the grandparents and families who have been thrust into the role of raising grandchildren uh, resulting from this opioid crisis? And I'm basically calling on both the governor and the One Ohio Foundation to ensure that the real victims of this diabolical opioid crisis and the opioid orphans, their grandparents, those families get direct financial help they need uh, to ensure that these children who have already endured so much trauma are taken care of and have reasonable and, and opportunities in their life. That's Jackie Lewis. She's a mother, grandmother, and advocate for caregivers. Jackie, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for allowing me. I'm grateful. And let's bring another voice into the conversation now, Christine Menhe. She's an attorney by training and founder of OpioidSettlementTracker.com. Christine, thanks for joining us. Holy, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, you started your website in response to what happened with tobacco companies in 1998. And that settlement was also taken up by the states after individual lawsuits failed. Why did the opioid settlement go through the states and not individuals or the families who have been affected by the epidemic? That is a great question, a profound one with a very simple and also incredibly complex answer. Individual cases just didn't do well in litigation. The litigation that we're hearing about now, the opioid settlements that are in the news, they pertain to states and localities cases against these pharmaceutical corporations. This is what academics would call the third wave of opioid litigation, which implies that there's a first and a second. Yes, the first was led by individuals suing pharmaceutical companies, largely Purdue. Those cases failed because these companies had the very repugnant but persuasive defense against causation which roughly translates into, ma'am, we didn't make your son or daughter take opioids. Um, the but second Christine, wave. I mean, yes. I, I, I mean, I'm reflecting on the conversation we just had with Jackie Lewis, whose son was prescribed opioids when he was a teenager. So exactly. how does that hold up in court? Well, um, it didn't hold up in court for the individuals because corporations had that argument against causation. We didn't make your son or daughter take opioids. So then 
classes of individuals banded together and thought, okay, if we join our forces together in the federal court systems, maybe they'll listen to us now. Those class actions failed as well. Um, and frankly, government suits are just so persuasive and successful because they're able to come to court equipped with macro population data that persuasively paints a picture of public nuisance, et cetera. But I mean, what you're touching upon is very real, that there are aspects of this litigation that don't capture the heart of this overdose crisis at all. Um, the fact that states and local governments have billions at their disposal, that they've won largely on the backs of hundreds of thousands of individual people dying is a travesty. If One Ohio was doing its job right, they would be reaching out to Jackie for her advice. Um, there are several aspects of the litigation that don't necessarily produce the type of justice that we um, trust the courts to produce. So what I'm hearing you say is if it's an individual or even a small group of people trying to sue a company, the personal responsibility argue, argument holds up well in court for those corporations, even though a trusted person, a doctor, is actually prescribing this medication, as we heard from Jackie. For sure. I mean, this is the repugnant black mirror state of affairs that we are in. That absolutely is the case. Um, individual suits. It's incredible how many emails I still get to my site. Um, folks asking, how do I participate in the opioid litigation? All the while, I know that the deadline to participate and produce bankruptcy proceedings passed in 2020, three years ago. Um, this captures another interesting aspect, you know, with the bankruptcy cases in particular. So much effort was made supposedly to um, provide potential claimants with notice. But here we are three years later, and there are folks learning just now that opioid settlements are a thing, that the litigation is a thing. And I'm, you know, tasked with this responsibility of telling them, well, not only are you not going to get individual recompense, but your only opportunity to do that was three years ago. Well, Anari, in just 2020 alone, the opioid epidemic cost the U.S. nearly $1.5 trillion. That's according to the U.S. Congress Joint Economic Committee. So how much is this $50 billion settlement really? It depends, you know, how you look at it. I think a lot of places, state and local governments, are seeing it as an influx of cash that they can use and want to use and need for this epidemic. At the same time, I have not had anyone say to me, this is enough to address the harms. This is enough to solve the crisis. This is enough to end it. It's not. I think most experts say it's another avenue there to combine with, you know, federal uh, government funding, with state government funding, with, you know, philanthropic funding to address the opioid epidemic. And it varies even further when you look at um, rural versus urban areas. Uh, different places are getting different amounts of this money, often depending on population, uh, the number of overdose deaths they've had. And so particularly small rural communities, sometimes that uh, have had a disproportionate impact from the opioid uh, epidemic, but have a smaller population, sometimes are getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars over 18 years. We're taking a look at where money is going as states receive millions of dollars through opioid settlements. We'll be back with more after this quick break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stamps.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. 
Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Anita Rao, host of Embodied, your source for intimate conversations about sex, relationships, and health. We're a show that doesn't shy away from uncomfortable conversations and takes on everything from diet culture to growing up mixed race to how AI is changing our relationships. Subscribe to the Embodied podcast from WUNC, part of the NPR Network. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the discussion by adding another voice. Dr. Kara Poland is an addiction medicine doctor and chair of Michigan's Opioid Advisory Commission. She's also an associate professor at Michigan State University's College of Human Medicine. Dr. Poland, welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Uh, Dr. Poland, Michigan is anticipating over $1 billion from opioid settlement money. Uh, $39 million has already been distributed to the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. What do you know about how that money was spent? We've um, only been able to receive the information that's been made publicly available, which has been relatively limited in the state of Michigan. Um, So one of the big goals of the Opioid Advisory Commission is to encourage transparency and collaboration, both with our communities as well as cross-branch collaboration within um, the Michigan government. Um, And so we're diligently working with our legislature and with the governor's office to uh, create pathways and uh, data and information sharing agreements. I should mention we did reach out to Michigan's HHS Opioid Task Force to ask how they used that $39 million, but they did not respond. Dr. Poland, the state legislature created the Opioid Advisory Commission last year to make recommendations on the opioid fund. The legislature appointed members who include community leaders and experts in addiction medicine and behavioral health. You're the chair of the commission. How do you recommend the funds be used? Well, we um, we certainly wanted to focus on encouraging the state to follow Exhibit E from the settlement dollars that we're currently working with, as well as aligning with the national standards according to the Bloomberg principles in collaboration, uh, along with working with the National Academy for State Health Policy, as well as the Colorado Attorney's General's Office leads a collaborative as well. Um, so we've really focused on um, the four pillars of harm reduction, primary prevention, treatment, and recovery, aligning those um, and understanding what currently is happening within our state as well as what we'd like to see in the future. One of the key parts of our statute is that we're supposed to do a gap analysis. um, And we have to remember that the point of the money is to fill gaps that are not currently funded. Um, So identifying those gaps um, and working towards uh, determining the best use of those dollars. In Michigan, 50% of the money went directly to communities. Um, and municipal so uh, our um, counties and individual municipalities. So making sure that those uh, funds are 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 understood that we're aligning with what is currently being done in the communities, and of course collaboration with our um, with our tribal uh, partners as well, which have. Um, Often, which have a separate settlement. So purposeful um, and meaningful outreach and collaboration with them has been 
key to ensuring that uh, that population is included in the conversations. Now, you mentioned Exhibit E in the settlement. This is a list of suggestions for how to spend the money. Can you give us a few examples? Correct. It's it's a list of how we could potentially spend the money, but also is a list of the limits of where we can spend the money. Um, so things like uh, that are that are difficult to fund through federal dollars, such as um, safer use supplies. Uh, that's been a that's been a key um, opportunity in many communities. Um, treatment. Uh, you had mentioned earlier in the show, um, safer safer injection facilities. Um, those are those are some of the treatment opportunities. On the um, prevention, you know, evidence-based, validated prevention tools that can be used as primary pre- prevention, both for communities as well as um, kind of more the more traditional K through 12 prevention that we think about. Well, Dr. Poland, briefly, what is happening in Michigan right now around the opioid epidemic? Uh, Here in Michigan, we lose eight individuals to opioid overdose alone every day. Um, So there is not a community and there is not an individual who has not been affected by the opioid epidemic and more broadly the substance use epidemic. So um, we are one of the states that has had a higher rate of death than many other states. And when we talk about how these numbers are playing out in rural communities as compared to urban communities, what do you see there? So we um, we certainly have our large city, our larger cities of Detroit, Grand Rapids, and Flint. But then the vast majority of the upper half of Michigan, including Michigan's Upper Peninsula, is very rural. Um, and we definitely we don't even have a prescriber for medication for addiction treatment um, in every community. So we don't have somebody who is actively prescribing medication to treat addiction in every county. So that is a hugely limiting factor for patients who. Um, are interested in treatment. Aniri, one of the things I'm hearing is there is a lack of of data or information sharing. And you, you recently wrote about the federal government's role in all of this. What kind of oversight can they put in place here, if any? So the federal government doesn't have a prescribed role because the national settlements were argued by state attorney generals and you know the companies themselves. But The federal government could do a number of things. Uh, It could incentivize states uh, and local governments to spend money in a certain way by saying, we already provide certain grants to address addiction issues or um, prevention in schools. Uh, We will give you more money of that kind if you use the settlement money in XYZ way or somehow tie it together. Um, They can... The national government, the federal government, has access to national data, and they recently made uh, an overdose, uh, non-fatal overdose dashboard available to states, so they can make that kind of data more easily available, so that states can figure out where is our greatest problem, where are the gaps where we should be using this money, what kinds of things should we fund, and they even have the option of uh, some. A lot of the funds uh, the federal government spends on uh, addiction is treatment through. Medicaid, which is uh, an insurance program. And so there's a possibility that the federal government has a claim to some of the state's settlement shares uh, because they they were used to pay for Medicaid. And in the past, with the tobacco settlement back in the 90s, the federal government gave up that money and said, you know, states should keep all the settlement. But what experts from the tobacco settlement say what they could have done and maybe should have done is say, we will give up that money, but states have to promise to use it in evidence-based ways to address the epidemic. 
And they have that opportunity this time as well. Well, Alex from North Carolina emails, my 26-year-old daughter died from an overdose in October 2020. For 10 years, I was her chief supporter, cheerleader, and disciplinarian. She was in at least 10 rehabs, and all but one rehab was largely the same. The one place she did well was free to all county residents, diverse, and most importantly, long-term. We need more places like this. Dr. Pullen, what does the research show about the most effective methods to treat and prevent substance use disorder? So the most effective methods to treat substance use disorders, the only ones that by the current evidence are shown to reduce the outcome of death are medications for opioid use disorder, buprenorphine, um, the trade name is Suboxone, as well as um, methadone. Uh, Those are the only two ways that are proven to decrease mortality. So focusing on on that is really important um, in terms of access to care uh, and and creating systems that that can live longer than a grant. Um, Much of our treatment ecosystem is done through grant dollars, which requires us to kind of reinvent the program at the end of every grant because you can't be funded just, hey, we're doing great work, let's continue it, um, is just how the grant system works. In terms of prevention, I think it's really important to draw on the training and learnings from Bruce Alexander, who is a a researcher out in Vancouver who for decades has researched the impact of community on substance use. And what Dr. Alexander's research uh, promotes is that the opposite of addiction is connection. Um, Places like recovery community organizations, um, commonly known as RCOs, uh, make great centralizing locations as an access point for care, as a place to access treatment, as a place for prevention to occur. The thing that helps prevention the most is having human connection between our adolescents. Adolescents having programs like Boys and Girls Clubs of America or similar analog to that, having a sense of purpose and community um, in reducing the isolation that has um, you know, impacted our, our world, not only since COVID, but I've been talking about that in terms of addiction for the last decade, as uh, many scholars have been. Um, so we, we need to make sure that we have a great centralizing organizations. Um, I, I personally think um, RCOs are a great uh, direction to go in um, to allow them to help us support all four pillars across across the lifespan and across the needs of our the needs of our communities uh, by living, working, and being a part of the community. Christine, the word accountability has come up several times during the conversation. Legally, what could happen if states don't use the funds in ways that adhere to the terms of their agreements? Um, theoretically, uh, some enforcement in practice Not very much. Somewhat of a dirty secret involved in the settlement agreements for the distributor and Janssen deal is um, the fact that if states do not self-report their non-opioid remediation spending, the parties at large are going to assume that the state didn't misspend those funds at all um, to backtrack and restate. Um, under the major settlement agreements, 85% of funds have to be used on the very broad definition of opioid remediation, which includes reimbursement and admin expenses. Okay, So if a state uh, spends any money on non-opioid remediation things, that needs to be reported up to Brown-Greer, and then Brown-Greer will uh, report that out to the public. And Brown-Greer is? Brown Greer is the entity selected to help the settlement administrators and the settlement parties. Uh, I, Brown Greer is the settlement administrator selected to help the parties distribute the funds to the actual political subdivisions and states. 
Um, so if these non-opioid remediation amounts, if the state doesn't volunteer them within the settlement agreements, is a provision that states, listen, if you're not going to volunteer it, we're going to assume that you spent all of it on opioid remediation, which effectively creates an incentive to not report it at all. Dr. Poland, Michigan's Opioid Advisory Commission recently released a report which is quite critical of the spending transparency. It says in part, quote, despite its best effort, the commission encountered numerous challenges in accessing information that may have otherwise supported completion of critical statutory tasks, end quote. What are some of the biggest challenges you faced while trying to do this work? The biggest challenge we faced here in Michigan was that lack of transparency and and meaningful collaboration um, across the government entities. What we had intended to do with this year's report was to work with our uh, state-specific data um, and then broaden out to sort of national data that that has state uh, information on it, as well as some of our private and uh, philanthropic uh, entities in the second year. But because of uh, various challenges we had in terms of information sharing um, across those government branches, we were unable to adequately uh, do a gap analysis. Well, Christine, briefly, you've called the work you're doing tracking these settlements a sprinting marathon. Why? Well, it's sprinting marathon because we have two um, ways of looking at this mess temporally, I suppose. It's a marathon because these settlement agreements are attached to 17, 18-year terms, uh, still shorter than the 25-year-old, uh, 25-year term attached to the master settlement agreement in the big tobacco era of things, but still a quarter of a generation um, or a generation. Um, and also the settlements can also be very uh, short-term as well. Some states have negotiated one-year payouts. So that's the marathon aspect. But it's a sprint because while we've been in this show together, People have been dying from our preventable overdose crisis. Lives can be saved now. And the reason why I push for public reporting of expenditures is because I'm operating off of the assumption that sunlight is the best disinfectant, that if states are required to publish their receipts on spend, that maybe that they'll stand maybe they'll stand up a little straighter as they're spending it. As I've always said, um, the efficacy of these settlement dollars will depend less on which level of government holds these funds and the integrity with which it is spent. So I'm heartened to see the states that have committed to public reporting 100% of their expenditures. We had Josh Stein, AG of North Carolina, earlier on today. Um, He mentioned that North Carolina is pursuing a 100% transparency approach. This is true, but this is also a recent development. North Carolina was publicly reporting 85% of its funds prior to last week, but it did the amazing thing of closing that 15% gap and pledging to publish its uh, legislature's appropriations in in an easy-to-access, easy-to-read format as well. Because, of course, the difference between publicly accessible and truly reported to the public is one of equity, too. Well, we'll end on this email from Robin, who says, My son was also addicted to opioids for 15 years. We're extremely lucky that he survived and has been clean for five years. He had a back injury from playing hockey in high school and so was prescribed Vicodin. I would like to see that people who have been through this horrible experience get some financial help. People suffer even beyond getting clean. Money for specific things that my son is dealing with would be huge. Well, this is a story we'll continue to follow in the 
months and years to come. We've been speaking with Aneri Patani, a senior correspondent at KFF Health News, Christine Menhe, an attorney by training and founder of OpioidSettlementTracker.com, and Dr. Kara Poland, an addiction medicine doctor and chair of Michigan's Opioid Advisory Commission. She's also an associate professor at Michigan State University's College of Human Medicine. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com slash NPR to get 10% off your first month. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.